to Wednesday night Bible study. Uh, we have been exploring some of the, the topics surrounding Moses and the law uh, in conjunction with our weekend series about Moses and a new beginning, trust, transition, and adaptability. Last week, Pastor Skip led us uh, into the idea about the feasts, the feasts of the Lord that he instituted to his people so that they could remember uh, about their deliverance and things like that. So last week we explored the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which had a, a lot of significance within that. Uh, there's, this, there's the one, one aspect that was significant in that they were to remember uh, their time in Egypt and the escape from Egypt, the, deliver, the deliverance uh, from Egypt by partaking in unleavened bread, reminding them that they had to rush to get out. There was no time to put leaven in the bread to have it rise. That was one aspect of it. There's also the, the concept of leaven in Scripture that represents sin. And they talked about how leaven needed to be removed because leaven has a way of getting into something and then kind of permeating the whole process of what it gets involved in. And so there was, there was an encouragement, a, a word to, to explore the places uh, that may be consisting of leaven or, or places where leaven has gotten in to us um, and by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit to have that removed uh, from us. We're going to continue about the feasts uh, tonight with an aspect of the Feast of the First Fruits. In a couple weeks, Pastor Kyung is going is to go a little bit further in the Feast of the First Fruits and sort of the offering of the First Fruits. Tonight, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the, al- the aspect of the Feast of the First Fruits that deals specifically with the law of the firstborn and the offering of the firstborn. And that comes to us in Exodus 13. Verses 11 to 16, uh, it, it's on your handout. It will also be on the board behind me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read it uh, for you. Feel free to follow along um, on the screen behind me or on, on your handout in front of you. And then after I read it, I'm going to dismiss you into some time of individual study where I'll ask you to just uh, read through the section again, look for things that may be jumping out at you or or maybe questions that you have, feel free to mark up your paper with a pen if you have that. And then there will be a time after your individual study time where you can get together in groups, in smaller groups, and discuss a few questions that are also on your handout as well. They'll also be on the screen behind me. So let me read Exodus 13, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11 starts, And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you in your father, and your fathers, and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, that is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The males shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? that you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. 
Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb. But all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. For by the strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. So feel free to take about the next uh, five minutes or so and do some individual study. Again, you can explore some of the questions that we've asked you to consider at the bottom of the page or just read through it again and see what sticks out to you. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Heard a lot of really good things in groups. Some groups are still going, like this one over here. Way to go, guys. <laughs> Way to go. Way to go. <laughs> everyone likes to blame the one who's talking. That's funny. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Go. We'll, uh, we'll look through some of these questions and... Um, I'll let you know how I kind of worked with the questions as well. And uh, for me, there were really three kind of major themes that emerged from this study of the law of the firstborn. And the questions were designed to lead you into, into and out of those, those themes. So the considerations, if you will, that I'd like us to look at together from this section are grace first, law second, the theme, the concept of redemption, and then finally, that question asked by the Son, what is this? To talk about the law of the firstborn. So the first consideration is the idea of, of grace first and law second. The first question was, what are the Israelites commanded to do in verse 12? And what they're commanded to do is to set apart to the Lord all that open the womb, or the firstborn, um, and the males shall be the Lord. So they are commanded to uh, set apart the firstborn uh, for, of, their, of their livestock and also uh, their children. And the question, the second question that I think is the appropriate one to ask is the question of why. And the question why relates back to verse 11 where it talks about and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you with your forefathers and gives it to you. Verse 12 doesn't happen unless verse 11 comes true. When, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, not if, not he might do it, when he does it, he is going to do this and gives it to you just as he swore to you. There's something about the, the faithfulness of God to, to keep his promises to his people that is, is very much present in these, in these first two verses. He's asking them to respond to his deliverance and bringing them into a new land by offering their firstborn. So it is the experience of grace that they have first with God before the law comes to them or before this response comes to them. So grace first, law second. And this is a repeated theme that we've seen over and over when we've, we've talked about the law. We've talked about how it came to the Israelites, that it came to them after they had been delivered 
out of Egypt, that God was showing himself to be faithful to his people, to say that he, he, is, he, is, making, he is making promises of deliverance, coming through with that deliverance, and then from that deliverance saying, here's how I'd like you to live in response to what I've already done for you. And that is, is helpful for us to think about because if we think of it in the other way around, we have to think, well, I have to do all these kinds of things. I have to do these laws in order to have an experience of God's grace. And that's a tough way to live. That is, that is a way to live that, that constantly makes us work harder and just try to be better in order for God to give us his grace. But the reality is, is that God has poured out his grace. He has acted in deliverance and brought us salvation and then said, here's how I'd like you to respond. Grace first, law second. For the people of Israel back then, for us today. The second consideration is the theme of redemption. As you work a little bit with the, with the term redeem, what, what was kind of your, um, your current concept of, of redeem and how, how you got that, and then maybe some of the ways that verse 13, when it talks about the redemption, or it says redeem twice, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. If you'll not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So there's a lot of mention of redeem. Now the term redemption actually means to exchange or to buy back. And sometimes, and actually we see redemption quite commonly uh, in our culture on the top of, of soda cans. Or if you're from the Midwest, um, cans of pop. Did I say that right, Sam? Okay. <laughs> and on top of the soda cans, you'll see a little, a little thing that says California redemption value. And on top of, so on top of that can, it's communicating to you that that can has worth if you do something with it. If you exchange it after using it, you can get something in return for it. So you exchange or, or you buy back. And the concept of redemption was often associated with the context of slavery. So something was given in order to buy back a slave, or something was given in exchange for the freedom of the slaves. That's how they thought of redemption. So this concept would be very much understood by the Israelites, because as an enslaved people, they had experienced redemption. God did something in order to grant their freedom, in order to give them back their worth, or to buy them back. Then we have this whole thing about donkeys needing to be redeemed by the sacrifice of a lamb. And, and what does that mean? Why, why, is it, why is it the donkey and the lamb? What's going on there? And this is important because this actually is a very clear picture of the gospel. Because donkeys were unclean beasts. That the only way they could be redeemed or be given any kind of worth or value or in their freedom is if a clean lamb was sacrificed in their place. So just to, just to be clear on that, to repeat it, an unclean beast 
with no worth in and of itself that is doomed gets back its freedom and worth and value because a clean lamb is sacrificed so that it can be redeemed. This is the gospel. The gospel is that we are unclean as people. We bring nothing of value. We have no worth outside unless there's a sacrifice made for us and we are redeemed. So the gospel isn't just, just do better, try harder, improve yourself. It's actually be able to recognize yourself as somebody in need, as somebody with, that brings nothing to the table, that is saying, I need somebody to redeem me. I need somebody to be sacrificed in my place in order to have value, in order to have worth, in order to gain freedom. This picture of the donkey being redeemed by the sacrifice of the lamb communicates our gospel. And I think it also communicates something about, if, I mean, if we really kind of think ourselves as the unclean beast that needs the clean beast to be sacrificed in our place. Another concept that I think go, runs alongside of this is the idea that, you know, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make God love you any more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Nothing. What you can do is, is throw yourself at, at the mercy of this sacrifice and just admit, I need something sacrificed for me in order to have worth, value, and experience freedom. I need redemption. So this picture of the donkey and the lamb is very much, very much in line with the Christian gospel. Redemption and how this points to Jesus. So much of this idea of the law of the firstborn points to Jesus. There are multiple New Testament texts where Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. In Colossians 1, Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. There's another reference in 1 Corinthians that we'll get to. But backing up just a little bit into the concept of the donkey and the lamb, it was John the Baptist who identified Jesus when he first came onto the scene as Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, another pointing back to the idea of the redemption that could only come through the sacrifice of a lamb. One of my favorite authors, uh, Tim Keller, talks about uh, redemption and exchange and, and how Jesus um, points to that or, or displays that. He says this, It is crucial to remember that the Christian faith has always understood that Jesus Christ is God. God did not then inflict pain on someone else, but rather on the cross absorbed the pain, violence, and evil of the world into himself in order to provide that redemption or that exchange. He received the punishment that all of us deserved and absorbed it within himself. Something else about our need 
uh, for redemption and, and just to communicate that, that we have a need and why we have a need uh, for redemption is we have a need for redemption is because we have sin. There are ways that we operate and live that are outside of the will of God, outside of the law of God that, that show us that we have sin or that we have need for redemption. And another author that I really appreciate named John Stott has this to say about uh, sin and our need for redemption. He says that the essence of sin is that we human beings substitute ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where we deserve to be. And I love this quote for a, a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is, is because it points us back to when we looked at Genesis a couple weeks ago. And when God put all the trees in the garden and he, and he said, but there's one tree I want you to stay away from. And by staying away from that one tree, you will actually display to me how much you trust me. He didn't say that, but that's, that's sort of Kyle's interpretation into that. And I believe that's, I believe that's true. That was, it, was, it was there to, to see that they really did trust him with all the things that he had provided for them. But then they decided, you know what, I, I, I think, you know, through some manipulation, they, de they decided, I, I, I think actually we, we want to be like you. We want to know better. And they had the experience of partaking in the fruit of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And some might say that at that point they decided that they, they wanted to know good and evil so that they could create their own standard of good and evil and not go by God's standard of good and evil. Which could communicate that that was the place where man said, we don't need you, God. We'll put ourselves in your place. And I love this quote because it communicates very well that even though we have put ourselves in God's rightful place, that the essence of salvation is that he comes and puts himself in our place and takes the punishment that we deserve to provide redemption. Another way that redemption is displayed by Jesus and another way that uh, this image of this law of the firstborn and redemption uh, really points to him is on Isaiah 53, which is uh, commonly known um, as the, the text around the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53, 5 says this, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. Again, this is God taking our rightful place receiving punishment, and we get to go free. Just as the unclean donkey gets redeemed because of the sacrifice of the lamb. This is part of the law of the firstborn. Now, how this whole idea of the law of the firstborn uh, connects with this idea of the, of the feast of the first fruits. Um, and normally... Uh, or actually, what, how it connects uh, is that uh, the first fruits uh, were, a, were a celebration when, um, when harvest came and the first, first fruits came, and it was exciting because finally there was something there in, in an agrarian society that was, it was a very exciting moment. 
And there was a lot of anticipation around that fruit finally coming. But when it, when it did come, the Feast of the First Fruits called to, to sacrifice that, that first part of your harvest and give, give that back to God, which is a huge display of your trust. To say, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you the first. This may, this may even be the best. Typically it was the best. I'll give this to you, and then we'll wait uh, for you to provide. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So the, the feast of the first fruits, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, points to the re- resurrection of Christ. And Paul's communicating that Jesus is, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, the resurrected Christ is a preview for what's coming to all the people who have claimed the redemption that Christ has given. Or all those that have claimed Christ as Savior and Lord will experience that resurrection as well. Interestingly enough, the resurrection of Christ happened on the calendar date of the Feast of the First Fruits. Isn't that interesting? So his experience was saying, this is, this is what's coming in the future. For those of you that have entered my kingdom, for those of you who have claimed me in Savior and Lord, you will experience this as well. I think that's amazing. So there's a lot of stuff in here about redemption. Um, a lot of stuff about what Jesus has done for us in order to buy us back. He exchanged himself in order to grant us freedom. How grace and law work with redemption is important as well. Because we're looking at the law, we're looking at the experience of grace that people have before they receive the law, and then redemption within that. And how I think it hangs together, grace, grace, law, redemption, is, is this idea, especially in the in the the law of the firstborn, I believe it's saying that a sacrifice has been made for your freedom. A sacrifice has been made for your freedom. When the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt, there was a sacrifice that was made for that freedom. Since there is a sacrifice made for your freedom, will you offer me the firstborn of your livestock in order to remember what I've done for you? Will you offer me the firstborn of your livestock in order to remember what I have done for you? And even to celebrate what it is that I've done for you. And I think how that translates to today is that a sacrifice has been made for our freedom. Will we offer our best in order to remember and celebrate that sacrifice? A sacrifice has been made for our freedom. Will we offer our best in order to remember and celebrate that sacrifice? Got some stuff about redemption. Finally, the, the question, what is this? And the question, what is this, uh, just in case... You you had lost track of that within the text is in verse 14 where it says, So it shall be, when your son asks you in time come, in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By the strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, uh, out of the house of bondage. And I love this question because I think it's 
it's, it's so innocent. And it, it assumes that during the process of offering the firstborn of your livestock, your kids are going to be around, and they're going to see it, and they're going to think, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? Is, is it, and it's a very simple question. Um, and the, the, reason I, the reason I like that, just to take a, a little bit of a sidebar, is I have a two-year-old, and we are, we are so firmly in the what's that stage that, that I, when I see this question, I just laugh because I think, oh, that's where I am. Uh, anyhow, so, but, but kids are like that in general. There, there's, there's a curiosity to them that's, that's, that's really healthy. They're discovering things. Um, and it's not just kids. It's, it's adults, too. Whenever, whenever we go to kind of a, a newer place, if we like to sightsee, that's how we tend to respond. We think, what's that over there? And what's that? And what's that? And we wish we had a tour guide. And what's going on? And, and uh, it, so in this interaction, I, I think that's what I see happening, is a, is, a, is a kid saying, why are we doing this? What is this? Which leads to the question of, why do you think it was important for parents to explain the law of the firstborn to their children? And I think it's important because in the retelling of the story, the parents are able to remember and recall what had been done for them. And they remembered the deliverance that God had provided for them. They remembered their time in Egypt and what it was like to be in bondage, in slavery, and people under the law of oppression. They remembered what that was like. Or they had heard stories about it, and so they were recalling what those stories were like. And now in this new place, they could say, but God has delivered us out and given us into this land. And the people of Israel had this great practice of repeating their history over and over and over and over again. And they're one of the only ancient peoples who decided to write it down, too, and keep it. And there's something about the retelling of that story and the remembering of what God has done that gave them solace in the present and hope for the future. So retelling and remembering how God has been faithful in the past gives us solace not only for the present, but also hope for the future. And I think that's a, that's a critical discipline as a follower of Jesus to develop the ability to remember how God has been faithful in the past and talk about it over and over again with your friends, with, with people that you're, that you're journeying in faith together to say, this is how God has been faithful to me in the past. Or if you're a friend of somebody who particularly is going through a hard time and you've seen how God has been faithful in their life, it is a great thing to say, remember how God has been faithful to you in the past. Here's how God showed up. Trust in that. Hope in that. And hope that in the future he will continue to be faithful to you. I think that's what's going on here in the what is this? Or what is this question? It's helpful for the parent to be able to explain that. It's also helpful for the child, because they get, they get kind of a window into the story that one day they will be telling to their child. A couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Pastor Paul's five-year-old um, daughter came into my office, and I was watching a video of 
um, of Hillsong, and they were playing Mighty to Save, and I was kind of watching how they're playing guitar and things like that, trying to figure it out. And um, there's that line, he rose and conquered the grave, that part. And, and uh, Paul's daughter says, uh, he did rise from the, he did conquer the grave. And then she turns to me and says, why did Jesus have to die for our sins? <laughs> and I thought, what a great what a great question, you know, and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how am I going to explain atonement theology uh, to a five-year-old that just had this class in seminary and, okay, wait, no, can't, can't, can't use that explanation. So I was thinking hard, real hard about that, and I said, I said you know, um, well, I, I think he died for our sins because we have done sins. We, we, since we've sinned, we've, we've done some wrong things. And you know how when you do wrong things, there, there has to be some kind of consequence for that. There has to be some kind of punishment usually. Sometimes it's like a timeout or something else. Or, you know, it's, the, so there's got to be some kind of consequence, some kind of punishment to when we do, when we do wrong things. Um, and instead of us having to have those punishments, God decided that he was going to take the punishment for us so we didn't have to experience it. That's, that's why, so he, that's why he, did, he died for our sins so we could experience freedom um, and be back into like a, a better relationship with God, our creator. It's like, oh, she says, oh, that's so nice. <laughs> Jesus is the nicest person in the world. Except for maybe God. So... <laughs> It was cute. It was a cute interaction, but, it, but I, I think what that did was it, those kind of questions are great questions because, there, there's, again, there's an innocence to it. That, that was a really good question for me. Um, and after, you know, having, having journeyed with Jesus for a, a long time, sometimes I think I, I kind of take that for granted and uh, don't, don't always find myself in a situation where I have to explain why Jesus had to die for our sins. But when those questions do come to me, I think they reaffirm something about why I believe them. So that question that I had you guys work with, that was who benefits from explaining your faith. And just before, before I say that, I, I, will, I will say too, some of us may be here and you're thinking, you know what, I, I, I'm just kind of exploring faith in general. I don't, I don't even know if, if I have faith completely. And if you find yourself in, the, in, in that place, I still think that... Uh, uh, you exploring faith, there are going to be times when people question why you're even exploring faith in the first place. Where the more you actually explain, here's, here's why I'm checking this, this stuff out, it makes it even more real in your experience. And, and, for, and for those of us that have been, that have been uh, journeying in faith for a while and have claimed Jesus as Savior and Lord, I think that the benefits of, of explaining your faith, those come not only to the person who you're explaining to so they can kind of gain a little bit more understanding maybe of what you think and what you believe and what you've experienced and those things, but it is so good for you. It is so good for you. Because again, I think it, it affirms something about what you believe. And it also uh, causes you to have to provide an answer when somebody's asking. An answer that, that may be kind of like a road answer that you've just heard somewhere. And you may realize, I need to come up, I need to have a better answer for that. Maybe I need to read a little bit more. Or, or you know, or, or to question, do 
do I, I, I think I, I really believe this. Maybe I, should, maybe I should ask some more questions of some people that may be further along in the journey and they can help me out with understanding what it is that I believe. Honest questions about our faith or the faith that we're pursuing or checking out, these are great for our faith and for the faith of those that may be just curious. So the question of what is this is really important in this section. Lastly, in verse 16, it says, It shall be a sign on your hand and as the frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt. And so the sign on your hand, the frontlet between your eyes, uh, these were just actual, uh, they, they turned into being physical ways that the Israelites carried around memories of, of the law, where they had the law written on their hands, or they had little pieces of paper written on the frontlets between your eyes and things like that. So, so this is an encouragement to carry it around. Keep thinking about it. Keep remembering it. Keep remembering your story. Remember the ways that God has delivered you in order to have hope for the future and to really lean into his faithfulness that he has been so far. And therefore, we should continue to hope in that faithfulness, hope in that redemption. Uh, there, are a couple of, um, there are a couple of book recommendations that I'd like to make tonight because we were talking about the question of what is this and the idea of explaining of explaining your faith and how good that is for you. Um, and maybe some of you are really kind of, kind of uh, hearing that and thinking, you know, maybe I, maybe I should do a little bit more reading and things like that just to kind of deepen, um, deepen my faith and deepen my understanding. Um, and one of them is by an author I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller. And the book is called The Reason for God. And I believe we sell this in the bookstore. It's a great book because what he does is he walks through some of the common questions and the common concerns about the Christian faith that the skeptical audience is asking. And the way that he handles the question is with great, great grace, but also really terrific explanation. That's the first half of the book. And then the second half of the book is, is, um, is, he, is he affirms some of the major um, orthodox Christian beliefs and why they make sense. Great book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller. Anything by Tim Keller, I will, I will say is, is, is good. He's, he's a very, very good author. Very good author. And then Know Why You Believe by Paul Little. There's also a book called Know What You Believe by Paul Little. Both of these books are, are terrific. Terrific books um, to deepen your discipleship. Um, if you're somebody who's kind of further along in your faith, they're great. If you're somebody who's just kind of starting out on the faith journey with Jesus, these are great books, either way. To affirm things that you've been hearing for a long time or just to learn more about this new faith that you've stepped into. Know why you believe, Paul Little, or know what you believe. So I would recommend those, those books to you. I believe you can get both of them through the bookstore or at least in the bookstore. But again, just to say, the law of the firstborn teaches us again that grace comes first, an experience of God of grace, that comes first, and then he gives us the law. He gives us the way to respond to him. Secondly, 
Redemption is a major, major theme. A major theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. But it comes to us here in the story of the law of the firstborn through the idea of the unclean beast, the unclean donkey that needs the clean lamb to be sacrificed so that it can have worth, it can have value, it can experience freedom. And then finally, the the question of what is this and the idea that honest questions about our faith are great for our faith and the faith of those who are listening with us. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word and the ability that it has to, to teach us. And Father, I, I pray um, uh, for, for everyone here, God, that they would have the opportunity to, to explain their faith over this next week. I pray that you would send people into their lives who question what it is that they believe and why. And God, I pray that in those moments when that happens, that you would show up and that you would be speaking uh, to them and through them um, as a witness uh, for you, but also as, a, as a, something that would affirm a belief that, that, that people already have. So God, again, I thank you for tonight, and I thank you for your word. Amen. Amen.